Hello, Church. Welcome to Church Online. We are so glad that you could join us today. My name is Lauren. And I'm Bobby. As we enter into this gathering now, let's pause together and be still. Breathe slowly. Let's recenter our scattered senses upon the presence of God. As we settle down, we want to lead us in a prayer that is shaped from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 to 58. Say this out loud with us. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let this be our focus today as we prepare for the week. If you are new to our church, we welcome you. We are so thankful you joined us. At any time during this gathering, you need prayer, you can open up our app and click the prayer tab, or you can email us at prayer at gcbdowntown.com. Everyone is invited to join us for a Zoom lingering time. This is a time to see one another, celebrate what we are learning, ask questions, respond to our ever-changing challenges, and take the Lord's Table slash Eucharist together. The link is in the description on whatever platform you are watching this video. If you are watching this during the 1030 premiere, the Zoom link will be live 10 minutes after the benediction. Before I move forward with today's worship, let's enter into a time of focus on generosity. It is so important that we keep the character of our Father in Heaven in front of us, as well as His will for our lives. He has displayed generosity, and we desire to follow his example. Please join us now in this generosity prayer. Father in heaven, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds. Who withstanding the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. I would like to encourage you to take a moment now to give. You can give through the app or online at gcbdowntown.com giving.
Welcome to week six of our seven-week series about the violence in the Bible and our struggle with vengeance. Today we are going to attempt to sit with the disciples as they listen to Jesus share what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount. This teaching is a guide to a new way of living. We are searching for truth and inspiration for how we live in our generation, non-violently, as the Gallery Church today and the Sermon on the Mount will clear up all confusion. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in His steps. The Apostle Peter Jesus sought to establish a counter-cultural, counter-Maccabean, non-Roman, anti-Canaanite kingdom whose citizens would embody a not-of-this-world reign over the earth. And on one Galilean afternoon, King Jesus sat down to tell his followers what this unconventional kingdom would look like. Preston Sprinkle, author and professor. Only God can demand of me what Jesus is saying. Jacob Neusner, a rabbi talks with Jesus. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. Jesus Christ of Nazareth All right, brothers and sisters, I know that we are so tired of online church, Zoom meetings, meetups in, a, in this setting. And, and after about five minutes today, I have a feeling that we're going to struggle to stay focused. And I just want to say to us, we must listen. We've got to listen to this teaching. I want to jump in, but I wish that there was a way that your chair, your sofa, the bed, wherever you're watching or listening to this, I wish in some way it had a seatbelt, but not a normal seatbelt, like a racing harness seatbelt that would allow you to really feel the real and exciting and challenging and the twists and the joys and the pain of following Jesus with all of our hearts and minds and our soul and our strength. Some of us are naturally all heart. I mean, we love and we chase every emotion and every feeling. Others of us are all mind. You want the intellectual argument. You want somebody to prove it. You need details. Others of us are all soul. You don't have to understand. You just know that there's a God and, there, and, and therefore you just go after him and you encourage others to do the same. Others of you, man, you are all fig physical. I need to move something and something needs to be done. This is broken. It needs fixed. Somebody's being harmed. I need to protect. So we are so diverse. And I know this is such an oversimplification, but this is what I'm dealing with as a pastor. Uh, when it comes to teaching you and to encouraging you about Jesus Christ. I wish that we were all in the same spot. I wish that you and I all had 
the exact same life experiences. I wish that we all had the same faith, the same discipline, the same hope, the same love, but we don't. We have a variety of experiences and places that we've come from, but we all are on the same path. Or as Mark said in his gospel, we're on the same way as Jesus, the same path. And I believe this. I just know that we're in different places. Some of us are just starting on the path. Others of us are way down the path. Some of us are near the path, but we've gotten off of the path. And some of us need to go get you and help you back onto the path. And, and all of us need to be aware that each one of us is in a different place. And so in these teachings, I'm trying to capture us all, no matter where we are, and continue to help us to see Christ. But this series isn't just about giving you good information and you just knowing facts. And it's not even just about correcting bad theology. This series is about how you and I, who follow Jesus, should be living. How we share, as we talked about in the replant series, that Jesus is Lord. This, this series is about how you and I engage in saying Jesus is Lord. This series is about how you and I say to people faith, hope, and love. And so I want us not only to know what we're talking about, but I want us to be able to put it into practice. And that requires us more than just listening to these teachings, but we've got to figure out a way of marinating them. So today's teaching actually comes from all of Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. So we're not going to take time to read the entire three chapters, but this is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I love this. And Preston Sprinkle um, said this in relation to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus sought to establish a counterculture, counter-Maccabean, non-Roman, anti-Canaanite kingdom whose citizens would embody a not-of-this-world reign over the earth. And on one Galilean afternoon, King Jesus sat down to tell his followers what this unconventional kingdom would look like. A rabbi named Jacob Nosner, in his book, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus, is uncomfortable with and ultimately rejects the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he goes on to say this in his book, only God can demand of me what Jesus is saying. Yes, I agree with Rabbi Nosner. Clearly he understood and clearly we need to understand that Jesus, if these words are true, he's not just an interpreter of scripture. He is the word of God in person. God himself in person. Jesus's teachings are more than just a personal ethic. I think it's so important. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, is that this is more than just a way in which individuals can be a better people. His teaching is content, is, is intended to reconfigure God's new community, which we call the church, into the people that look like him. This teaching was intended to mold his followers, his church, to be a visibly different acting group of people, not just an individual acting differently, but an entire group of people 
to act differently in, in the face of all the other kingdoms and all the other groups of people that were acting in what we'll refer to later as the world. So in Jesus's own words in Matthew chapter 5, 13 and 14, we are to be the salt of the earth and a light to the world. But in, in our gallery language, the way we summarize this, we're to be a public display of God's will and ways, God's greatness to the people watching us. This teaching, this, this is an instruction that is designed to be very different. It's designed to be communal. It is designed to be visible to people that believe and don't believe. The, this teaching is designed for people to put it into practice so that they can attract attention to themselves, cause people to shake their head in like be bewilderment, but showcase the missional heart of our true leader, King Jesus, which Pastor Bill talked so much about last week. Verse 16 says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Jesus is not just teaching people how to be better. We must understand this. He is He's also not just giving an impossible standard that we will never be able to live up to. The sermon, this teaching on the mount is, as Richard Hayes says, definitive charter for the life of the new covenant community, which I already said the new covenant community is the church. He says, this is the charter for this new covenant community. And through this new community, Jesus seeks to sculpt a counter-cultural masterpiece to bring in Ephesians chapter two, citizens of a great king that will embody, that will display a different society to the rest of the people that are indifferent to God. So if we read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 this week, this is what will happen to you. And you should expect to feel this type of response to not just these suggestions by Jesus, but the instruction, the tone in which he's declaring this to us, that these are things we must do. This will jolt your thinking. This will expose the desires in your own heart. This is going to contradict the normal ways that you and I live. The things that we normally would do, we're going to find, wait a minute, if I read this correctly, I can't keep doing that if Jesus is my true Lord. Let me give you a couple of just quick examples of ways that this just doesn't seem to fit in the way that we process in the in the culture of our world that we live in. The, we, we will read here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that mourners are going to be happy because they're mourning. Sufferers will be glad. The meek will be the ones that are going to rule the world. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 and 10. And then he goes on to say that you and I will be salt and light when... We reconcile with other offenders and love the spouse that we've fallen in love with. So he's going into this chapter and all these random topics. And he's he's not just saying, well, if you believe in me, you're going to be salt and light in the world. He's like, no, if you believe in me and then do what I say, you're going to be salt and light in the world. 
There is so much in here in this teaching on the Mount. And I want you to understand this is unexpected. God has been doing unexpected things ever since the King Jesus was born into a stable manger. There has always been this different way about God showing himself in revealing who he truly was to the first century people, but as well as to us today. It's like Jesus's kingdom is upside down, ruled by meek, pure-hearted peacemakers. So if we go on to read, and when you read the full chapters this week, which I encourage you to do, you're going to find out that when you are wronged, we're to forgive. When you and I have money, we're supposed to give. When you and I don't have money, we're supposed to give. When we give, we're not supposed to flaunt it. Like, look, I gave so much. And when you and I choose to fast from something, we smile. We don't go around mourning. And when you and I need food or clothing and the bank is totally dry, we don't worry about it like the rest of the world. We pray. So there's so much in this, and I want to try to unpack as much as I can today. But this wasn't just taught by Jesus. I want you to understand, this is how Jesus lived himself. He wasn't just giving a good sermon. He lived his good sermon. If we are careful to examine the teaching on the Mount, you and I are going to see that most of it has to do with violence. Toward the beginning of the teaching on the Mount, Jesus gives six what I refer to as contrasting statements that form the moral foundation of Jesus's teaching. So it goes like this. This is the phrasing. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So these statements, this you have heard it said, and but I say to you, cover subject matter like murder, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and how to relate to your enemies. Now, as you look at that list beside me, I want you to notice that three out of the six have direct references to violence, overthrowing one's enemies to set up God's kingdom on earth was the route that most of the messianic figures before Jesus had taken place. If you were to read through the Maccabees, you'll find that there were so many self-proclaimed messiahs. Even in the time of Jesus, there were self-proclaimed messiahs and their response to Rome and any type of oppression was violence. But Jesus, Jesus seeks a different way. And this sermon summarizes that different way. And after highlighting peacemaking and suffering as identity markers of his kingdom in Matthew 5, verse 7, and then verses 9 through 12, Jesus takes the issue of murder to a whole new type by contrasting it with another statement. So look at verses 21 and 22 with me. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. You have, if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. So he's pulling from Exodus chapter 20 in Deuteronomy 5. But I say to you, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. If you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. And that last word, Easter Sunday, 
Stay tuned. We're going to address that word hell. But okay, so not only are you and I not to murder, but every desire that leads to murder is prohibited. Jesus is stopping murder before it can even take place by prohibiting the very thing that is the first step towards it, which is anger. He even goes on to rule out verbal violence. Look at what he did here in this passage. The physical act of murder out, the verbal act of slander out, the heartbeat of violence, which is anger out. All of that is prohibited. You are not allowed to do any of it. I'm not allowed to do any of it. The next command that Jesus gives deals with retaliation. Look at verses 38 and 39. You have heard the law that says that punishment must match the injury. So an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now, so Jesus, now I want you to understand, this is so unexpected. The, the, this, you and I need to get this, that the disciples that were sitting with Jesus at the top of this mount were not expecting Jesus to say this to them. This was shocking to them. The disciples that are listening, he's telling them this. They are going to be the victims of what Jesus is talking about. And he's looking at them and saying, when this happens to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So two quick things come to mind. The first is, what in the world does do not resist one who is evil actually mean? And then the second, can we really live that way? So here's the quick answer. Yes, we should. Yes, we should resist evil. And yes, we can. We can live that way. I want to build a case for that now as we move forward. Because the Greek word here for resist is this word. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm just going to say something. You can laugh at me if you must, but anthesitum, that's it. That's all I'm going to get out. And it often refers specifically to violent resistance. Throughout the Old Testament, this word, this Greek word for resist is referred to military action. Israel would resist its enemies in battle. Canaanites weren't able to resist Israel. In the New Testament, this word resist refers to revolts, insurrections, and war. Josephus, who's probably one of the most popular first century Jewish historians, almost always used this Greek word for resist in ways that convey some sort of violent action. So when Jesus tells his disciples not to resist evil people, he's using a word that has been historically used in his context to talk about violent resistance. And if you've been a part of our church for a long time, you know, one of my favorite people to quote and read, and I encourage you to read everything he's probably ever written. One of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, um, he actually translates this verse simply put this way. Don't use violence to resist evil. Jesus is changing the way that those of us that follow after him live. Jesus is prohibiting us from using violence to resist evil. So watch where Jesus goes from here. Verses 39 through 42. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give a coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. 
Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. So Jesus takes this do not resist evil and this command, like this is a command, this isn't a suggestion, this command to do not resist evil. And now he's scattering it over a bunch of subject matter that I believe literally covers almost our entire life in every circumstance that our faith may be tested. And I believe that you and I should consider this. So let me break it down. Let me go verse by verse. The first is a physical attack, a slap on the cheek. I think that Jesus's disciples probably reacted the same way that you and I might if we were thinking about this literally. Somebody smacks me and I'm literally supposed to turn the other cheek and let them smack the other cheek. Now, there are a lot of people that have taken this verse and have tried to downplay it away from a punch and are saying, well, if, they, if you're smacking on the cheek, it's probably a backhanded smack. So it's more of a um, shame type of smack, not a violent attack. But in Judaism, so okay, if that's the case, I want you to understand Judaism, the Jewish people listening to Jesus, they're in an honor-shame culture. So when somebody shames you publicly, it is extreme to you. When you are publicly humiliated and your honor is taken away from you, I would say that that is no less harmful than a physical punch. But I would make a case if we had time to look at Luke chapter six, specifically in verse 29, where it says to the one who strikes you on the cheek, the other offer the other also. And this word strike is now referencing more of a punch than I would say a slap. And so I would say whether it's a shameful slap or a punch, Jesus is saying to his Christ followers, when you're attacked with shame, when you're attacked with pain, no matter what it is, if you have violence towards you, do not respond with violence. They are not to respond with violence, but they are to respond with, listen to this, unconditional, inexplicable, shocking love that comes from being a redeemed child of the Most High God who loves their enemies. So the first is a physical attack. The second is a legal attack. Verse 40, if they sue you, there is so much that I wish we had time to unpack about the Jewish culture and understanding. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to say this. If somebody had an unpaid debt in their culture, the debtor would give up his cloak as collateral until the debt was paid. If the debtor couldn't pay, then the lender would then take the cloak for keeps. But Jesus goes even further to a more expensive garment. Jesus now mentions that the lesser value, valuable underskirt is to be given and the coat that is the outer covering. So the coat was more valuable because it was more necessary for life because it could be used not only during the day to show honor and value and coverage, but it also had the warmth and the the capacity to be used as a blanket when you slept at night. So it was multi-purposed, had a multiple, multiple different purposes for us. So losing the tunic was no big deal, but losing the coat, the cloak was a big deal. So Jesus intensifies the love that the followers of his are to show people that sue them or that are seeking to do wrong to them. If somebody wanted to sue you to take your bike, you need to give them your car. 
That's almost the extreme at which the disciples would have been hearing Jesus. If somebody's going to sue you to take your bike, give them your car. This is so counterintuitive. You mean I am to shock my enemy with excessive generosity. All right, so you have physical attack, you have legal attack, and now you have a political attack. The next verse goes on to say, if anyone forces you. So if a Roman soldier ask the Jewish person to carry their heavy pack for a mile. He's saying to them, you need to carry it too, because the Roman soldiers would do this quite frequently. You know, the way that I interpret this is that you and I are to ease the burden of our oppressors. Jesus says, you and I address the imperial power by loving the imperialist. So what would this look like for us? What does it look like to love our enemy. We're going to continue to build this out over the next couple of weeks, but listen to me. We need to hear this before I get to the final one. It is tough for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ to follow him while we clutch onto our rights, our honor, our reputation. It is tough for us as followers of Jesus to follow him while we clutch onto our rights, our honor, and our reputation. So here we go. The last one is a financial attack. Give to the one, verse 42. The context of this text is not really clear, but I think there's several things that we can glean from this text as well as other things that Jesus said. I think you and I must remember that Jesus is still filling out what it means to love somebody or not resist somebody that is evil. So loving someone that's evil, not resisting someone that's evil. So maybe the person that is asking you doesn't deserve it. Maybe the person does deserve it. Maybe you actually have the money and it's easy to solve. Maybe you don't. Maybe they're a thief. Maybe they're not. But no matter what scenario you and I come up with, what we have to wrestle in in Jesus's words here is this. Jesus says we should give money when it doesn't benefit us. We need to go above and beyond. You and I respond differently to evil. So Jesus gives a sample set situation here where you and I are not to resist an evil person. Physical attack, social shame, legal injustice, political oppression, economic hardship. And this is what I believe I really want to get across here right now. Jesus invades every part of our life. No, there's no part of us that Jesus doesn't want to have control and want to get into. And he actually claims lordship over it all. I love this quote by Abraham Cupper who says this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I love that. I love that quote. I want you just to look at that just for a minute. A minute. Salt stands out in tasteless food and light shines in darkness. When the kingdom of Jesus becomes a reflection of the ways of the world, it is no longer salt and light. When our way of living is no different from the way of the world around us, there is no saltiness, there is no light. Some interpreters of this passage in the, in the text that I've just walked us through say that these words are just for Christians and not 
for government. So this is a personal set of standards and not a government set of standards. I want to address this just for a moment. The teaching of Jesus on the Mount does apply to all Christians and it saturates all areas of their life. I have just made a case for that. I've just spoken that Jesus wants this to pervade every aspect of a follower of Jesus's life. It would make no sense to say that this teaching that Jesus is giving his disciples on this mountain is fine for individuals and is even fine for the way that we act inside the church, but it doesn't apply to a Christian who is serving in a government or in their vocation. Um, one of the heroes of theology to many pastors is a man named Martin Luther, known as the Protestant, the great Protestant theologian and reformer. Listen to what he says in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount back in 1892. Luther says this when Christians went to war, quote, struck right and left and killed. There was no difference between Christians and the heathen. They did nothing contrary to this text, Matthew 5, 38 through 39, for they did not as Christians, but as obedient members and subjects under obligation to a secular person in authority, end of quote. Since they were killing for a secular government, Luther said this, and I again quote, different rule and are a different person. That's the way Martin Luther interpreted this. Jesus not a government, not a different person, is Lord over your entire life, which includes your vocation. Okay, so humor me just for a second. A Christian lifeguard can't say, as an individual Christian, I shouldn't lust, but my job as a lifeguard, I can gaze with desire upon all the beach bodies that I want. Every lifeguard does it. It's just part of my vocation. So you see the humor in this. Jesus doesn't give us room to obey some of the teaching and allow us to set other parts aside for our vocation and the demands of that vocation. So a lawyer who is a Christian shouldn't lie. A lifeguard who's a Christian shouldn't lust. If you are the secretary of defense of a nation, if Jesus is your king, you shouldn't hate your enemy. You shouldn't retaliate or confront evil with violence. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples that should pervade all of their life. As citizens of God's kingdom, we gladly surrender every fiber of our lives to the one who breathed the stars into being and breathes our life into all human life. He breathes life into all human life. So let me be clear on this. The teaching on the mountain was not given to secular governments, but it is binding on everyone who follows Jesus, no matter what your vocation. So let me begin to close this out. So Jesus offers us a command, go and love your enemies, verses 43 through 45. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, 
In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both evil and good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus takes an Old Testament command, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18, and he stretches the limits of it because he is the word of God. Leviticus 19.18 and then verse 34 says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against the fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Treat them, verse 34, like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the law of Moses never explicitly commanded the Israelites to love their enemies or even pray for the people that were persecuting them. The Old Testament allowed Israel even at times to use violence. We've talked about this against their enemies, but it wasn't the ideal. Loving your enemies is God's ideal. It is no wonder that this command became the most often quoted verse during the first through fourth century church as they were moving across southern Europe and North Africa. Most of the historians, Christian and secular, were talking about the church in that time period had them memorizing Matthew 5, 6, and 7 so that they could actually love their enemies. It was the hallmark. Enemy love became the reputation of the early church, the people that believed in it. So who is our enemy? Remember a couple weeks ago when I was talking to us about Jesus being over the law and the prophets, we introduced to you a Syrian general with leprosy. And when we were talking about this, we actually defined an enemy as someone who we don't yet know their story. In the teaching on the mountain to these disciples, there is nothing in Jesus's words that restricts the meaning of an enemy to only certain types of people. We can't say those people are exempt from Jesus's definition of an enemy. There is no room for you and I to have an enemy. When our enemy hates us, our desire for punishing them generally trumps Jesus's command to love. That's what's happening. That's what happened on January the 6th. That's what's happened to people using the Bible to oppress people with darker skin tones or to annihilate the Native Americans on the soil of America. There has been people carrying the Bible and they have not been focusing on Jesus's words and our human desire is to say, Jesus, I need an enemy. And Jesus is saying, you have no enemies. Jesus calls for us to live differently. This is why Jesus rebukes James and John for their vindictive anger towards their enemy in the Luke chapter nine story. This is why Jesus told Peter to put away his sword in the garden of Gethsemane. We must understand that our behavior must be different from the world if Jesus is really our Lord. If our behavior isn't any different, then Jesus really isn't our king. Our behavior must display Jesus and therefore draw attention to his way and will for human interaction. So let me summarize the Sermon on the Mount again in this way. When we are cursed, 
we bless. When we are robbed, we give. When we are struck, we don't strike back. When we have, here's, here's the thing. We have no enemies. We only have neighbors. We have no enemies. We only have neighbors. Let me just stop here just for a minute and just tell you a personal story. I actually wasn't going to include this, but I really feel like that I need to. When my son transferred into uh, Baltimore City Public School, there was times where he was threatened verbally and with gestures, but there was also a season where somebody had slid a note into his locker saying they were going to take his life. And it was a really crazy season. And I really have to say I'm really proud of the school for the ways that they rallied around my son and protected him. But you want to know what? I wasn't drawn to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to say to my son, don't respond with violence. That wasn't my first thought. There were ways in which I tried to communicate for him to love. But you know what I found myself doing? I found myself teaching my son how to have close quarters combat where we would actually get in the hallway of our home and I would show him like, if you're attacked, this is what you do in order to protect yourself when you have brick walls or a stairwell around you. And my, my desire was to teach my son to fight back. And there are a lot of parents, yeah, that's what you should do. But there's also a part of me that's like, son, you need to be able to look the person in your, in the eyes that hate you and tell them that you love them. I'm praying that my son continues to develop that and my daughter and myself, my wife and all of us, we can set an example that what Jesus is saying to us, we really can do. John 13, 15, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Jesus must have finally gotten through to Peter because listen to what Peter actually says to the early church years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. First Peter chapter two, verses 21 through 23. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his footsteps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Obviously, I was preparing this teaching coming out of the month of February, so much of my Black History Month readings and things were coming flooding back to my memory. And I remember a moment that I had just reread about Dr. King and what happened to him in one of his teachings, there was a time when he was delivering a speech and a member of the American Nazi party walked up on stage and literally punched him in the face in the middle of his talk. And King went back, but he regained himself without his posture, without falling over. But the way they tell the story is that he dropped his arms by his side and the man continued to punch Dr. King until people in the crowd jumped up and subdued the man and intervened and took him to a back room. They, but Dr. King left the stage and walked into the room where this Nazi, American Nazi party guy was being kept. Dr. King walked in and he says, I'm not going to press charges and I want you to know I forgive you. And then he walked out of the room grabbed a bag of ice, held it on his face, walked out onto the stage and finished his speech. Guys, listen to me. We can do this. 
But I also want you to know that it doesn't always work because obviously Dr. King was ultimately assassinated by another man. And there's going to be moments for you and I that we're going to feel like Jesus's ways work. And there's other moments where we're going to feel like, wait a minute, I'm doing this, but all I'm doing is suffering. And that's what Peter was talking about. Just because you and I turn the other cheek and offer the other one and maybe take a punch or a slap doesn't mean that the enemy is going to be like, oh, wow, look at you. What a great example. Man, I, I want to follow Jesus. I'm going to become a priest. It doesn't always work like that. Sometimes you and I are going to have more shame, more beatings, more torture, torture, and possibly even we might lose our own life. We might be killed for this. Like Perpetua and Felicity that I spoke to you about a few weeks ago. But the key is this. We love our enemies and we do good to those that hate us because that is who God is. So you and I are faithful more than you and I are concerned about being effective. Faithfulness is our motivation. And my response to us, to your question, why is faithfulness the response? Because Jesus grounds enemy love into the very character of God. And so in this teaching on the mountain to his disciples, he's teaching them that we now can learn from, that we love our enemies. We do good to those who hate us. We bless those that curse us. We extend kindness to the ungrateful. We lavish people with mercy, not because of that such behavior will work at confronting injustice, but such behavior showcases um, God. And I love what Preston Sprinkle says, God's stubborn delight in undelightful people. I mean, let's let that be our story gallery, church. Let us be known as we have a stubborn delight in undelightful people. Our life, future, security, freedom, suffering, and destiny all of it is in the arms of our loving Father in heaven, and we can trust him with our life. I hope this has been encouraging to you. We can do it. Let's continue to put it into practice. We want to invite you to respond to the word of God that we just received. We know that he is speaking and working in our hearts. Have you been cursed, robbed, or struck? Has an enemy become a part of your story? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you about this enemy? Jesus' teaching is what reveals God's will and way for us. Why is it so hard to trust God with our enemies and love the enemy while we wait for God to deal with them? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you?
Pastor Ellis shared that he believes that faithfulness is the goal and not effectiveness. How does this rest with you? Ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you now and help you let go of anything that is keeping you from seeing God's love and being a display of God's love to the enemy in your life. Let's respond to the Holy Spirit, acknowledge his work in us, and celebrate that we are lavishly loved by our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, church, I really do believe that we can encourage each other, um, edify one another, and really set a whole new standard of what our lives could look like in obedience to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I hope that you can find encouragement in going back through the notes and looking through the growth community materials and the hub materials in the app. I do believe that we need to saturate ourselves in this and look at one another and encourage each other um, and, 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 and say to one another, we can do this. Let's, let's live like Jesus commanded us so that when the world sees us, they see something different than they saw on January the 6th and in other dark moments when Christians have just not been salt or light. They've been tasteless and darkness. Let's, let's be different. And so I want to remind you, we are posting things and announcements about how we're going to be gathering back in person. And because of the way that we're recording this, we are not always going to have the most up to date information in our gathering. So watch the social media feeds, look for push notices in the app. We are going to be setting some standards for what it's going to be like when we gather back in person. There'll be times we'll be outside and there's other times we'll be inside. And so we're, we are following the guidance of some wise doctors and, and medical personnel that are helping us. But we are going to ask some things of you in order to make sure that we're safe and loving. So we please ask you to do that and also continue to be invitational. Invite people back into life with us um, and let them know we're going to do it in a, in a way that will be safe, but it will encourage us in our faith, hope, and love. All right, so here's our benediction. As we go from here today, may we understand more clearly this week that Jesus's teaching is worth us practicing until it becomes our habit, our natural response, no matter the pressure that you and I will have on us. God is love and you and I should be as well. May we find ourselves ourselves hearing our Father in heaven's voice, speaking his words over us as we go through this week. May we hear him say that I have you, you're in my arms, I will protect you. Don't take revenge, don't act violently, I've got this. I will do what's right by you. You act right, you love and show mercy. You walk humbly with me and I'll take care of the rest. May we hear God's voice saying that to us this week. 
And may God's grace and peace be with you. Thank you guys so much.